Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Uh, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen and faithful supporters, those who are still with us, even though uh, we have been absent for a while, obviously, uh, because of the global crisis that's been going on. Uh, we have been very busy making some wholesale changes to make sure we can abide by the current regulations and still provide uh, everybody in our treatment setting the best treatment possible during this time. And it's been crazy for everybody. But, uh, Mr. Host, how how you holding up? Any shortness of breath, dizziness, or any kind of lingering cough over there? <laughs> None of the above. Um as you know, uh, fortunately, I have a third world immune system, so I was never concerned. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't assume so, and I was going to say yes uh, because of said immune system. There was, uh, in fact, you may have already contracted it and uh, developed the antibodies. You might be one of those that you never even knew you had it. No, nah, beat it, beat it down without even knowing. Beat it down without even knowing. Excellent. Well, we're we're back. What has it been? Uh, maybe a couple of months, huh? About oh, yeah, about nine weeks. About nine weeks. Okay, okay. Well, we're back, folks. We uh we had to try and uh, amidst the madness and and still as busy as we are, we had to try and get a get a show in to talk about our our current state uh and and catch everybody up and and uh, check in with everybody. So um, we did have actually something historic. Uh, this is all historic, but something historic in the world of sports take place during this time uh, where, uh, as everybody knows, there's been no live sports. So uh, sports fans are going mad right about now, uh, having had to survive a couple of months without live sports. But there was a live event, the NFL draft, in fact, which it was the first ever NFL draft that was done remotely. And so without further ado, we're going to get some update in that category. (laughs) 
And like that, Mr. Hosta, I have to ask, did you catch any of it or hear about any of it? Apparently there were some funny things that happened. Uh, somebody in Tennessee, and maybe the, maybe the head coach, the Titans head coach, or somebody in the front office, they panned to their wherever they were going to be picking remotely. And apparently everybody online at least thought it was very evident that in the background, somebody was using the restroom. (laughs) I'll leave that to your imagination as to how they may have figured that one out. And then there was all the talk about a Bilicek's dog and uh, how it looks like maybe, maybe his dog is the one, the one authoritative figure in Bilicek's life that he doesn't have control over. But did you catch any of it? No, I purposely didn't watch it. And uh, that stuff is bound to happen, you know, if people are doing things from home and, um, you know, home is going to be home. Home doesn't care what's going on. <laughs> that's, that's exactly you know right. I mean? You got kids running around in the background and uh, for viewership and I think for obvious reasons, um uh, for obvious reasons, uh, it was like the highest rated or the high, most most viewed um, NFL draft in history. Um, but I think that's just, you know, people going so crazy without sports that the second there was a live event, everybody was going to tune into that. So, right. Uh, but that said, uh, so you've got a trio of teams that you must follow. Uh, happy, indifferent, disappointed about any of the picks? I'm happy with what the Cowboys did. Um, still trying to figure out what the Giants were doing, and the Jets. Um, the Jets were the Jets. I mean, they had which number pick did they have? The what was it? The fifth pick or something like something that. Something like that, yeah, top pick. And they picked an offense. I, I'm I'm glad they went offensive line, but they picked somebody that nobody was talking about. This guy's about you know nine feet tall, you know seven hundred pounds. Um, I'm exaggerating, of course, but he's one, probably one of the largest offensive linemen to come in, come out as a top pick. And of course, my friends back east, I'm asking the obvious question. He's going to play left tackle, Le- as you know, uh, Mr. Producer. Left tackle has nothing to do with with uh, size. It's all no. about technique. Technique. No, I mean, if the- you can get somebody there with size who has that technique, then you get that. You get that Joe Thomas, you get that kind of once in a generation Hall of Famer type, but you're always going to go technique and and probably speed over size at left tackle because that's what you got coming at you generally is a speed rush. Well, I used the analogy. I said left tackles have to be able to dance. Yeah. And guards, interior linemen, you know, have to be able to brawl. Um, So I said if this guy is that big, but he can dance, meaning he has quick feet, and he yep. can move his feet. But if he has feet like lead, he's got to be inside. Yep, yep. So uh, I was told in no uncertain terms to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and get and get on board with the pick. I said, I'll get on board after I watch the tape. That's right. That's right. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. You know, um, the draft is funny. I think, though, actually – the one position that tends to pan out as projected, generally speaking, are um, high-end, like top 10 um, offensive linemen. 
even first rounders, I'd say those tend to pan out. Like you don't get as many busts off of what seems to be a surefire franchise left tackle as mm-hmm. you do like a quarterback or a receiver or even right. on the defensive end, um, defensive line or linebacker, because, you know, there's just maybe more that, that they need to adjust to on that end of things. But it pretty much feels like if you're if you're drafting one of the top three to five linemen in the first round in the draft on the offensive side of the ball, they tend to pan out. So um, so so we'll see. Easier to evaluate, maybe. Right. But uh, but yeah, there you have that for for the local 49ers fans. I think we were generally happy. Lynch uh, once again managed to trade back. Uh, to acquire more capital and then take the player he was going to take anyway. Uh, but then they shocked the world by trading up um, in, in the first round pretty far up to draft a receiver that was kind of um, not really highly talked about going into the draft. And many had him as a second or a third round talent. Um, Shanahan, and obviously this could be to save face, who knows, clearly Shanahan wanted him. This pick was made for Shanahan, but Shanahan states he had him evaluated as the best receiver uh, in the draft. So um, that well, was uh, a, a surprising one, one, move, to say the least. One, one second, one second. Shanahan had him evaluated as the best receiver in the draft over Judy and C.D. Lamb. Over Judy, over C.D. Lamb, over Henry Ruggs, who was actually the first receiver taken, uh, over them all. Yeah. And so, again, I don't know if – I don't know how how tr- how much truth is in that. Maybe maybe he had this guy evaluated a lot higher than most people, but maybe hmm. not as the best receiver. But they weren't going to get the best receiver because they drafted the defensive lineman to replace Buckner with their with their first pick. Um, and with those receivers being gone, right? So maybe a little bit of that is to save face, and then a little bit of that is he actually does really really believe in this guy. Um, there's no doubt he's he's great. Uh, with the ball in his hand, but he still has a lot of refinement in the actual receiver game. You know what I mean? Like the route running, you look at Jerry Rice, he didn't overwhelm you with speed or size or any of the measurables that scouts fall in love with today, but he was a crisp, precise route runner. And that's what separated him from the pack. And so this guy's got a lot of raw physical talent, but, um, but he's not, you know, he only played Division One football for one year. He he was a junior college transfer. So, so we'll let me see. tell you, let me tell you a quick Jerry Rice story. So, mind you, throughout the mid '80s, so Jerry Rice was gra- drafted in 1985. So from 1985 onward, up through you know 1990, 1991 football season, um, you know. I'm watching the Niners on TV like everybody else. Everyone knows how great Jerry Rice is. So I, I come to California, and I'm in the Wells Fargo Bank on Woodside Road, close, you know, down the road from us, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in walks Jerry Rice. Now, at first, I didn't think it was him because, wait a second, this dude is tiny. Yeah, when I say right, tiny, exactly. I mean, I mean, relatively speaking, in terms of what they appear to be on television. You know yep. what I'm saying? And you would think somebody that is that great would be more, um, what's the word, you know, imposing yeah. or noticeable in their size. 
Um, now, obviously, with all the football equipment on, they look a little bigger than they are. But even right. guys outside of their uniform and their equipment, like a linebacker and lineman, you could see that these guys are big. Well, yep. this dude, well, look, I had it. They list him as 6'2. There's no way he was 6'2. I'm 6'4, and I had him by at least three inches, if not four inches. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you couldn't, t- he was wearing a, a sweatsuit. And you couldn't tell that this dude was, you know, big and refined in terms of his muscle stat- stature, et cetera. I was right. like, wait a second. This dude is playing in the NFL. It goes to show you that it ain't all about being the biggest person, the fastest person, or what have you. It ain't all about that. It's about right. other, it's about in other intangibles that if you don't have those things, but you bring those intangibles to the plate, sometimes those intangibles overwhelm and far exceed those people who come to the table with elite athletic, athletic gifts, size, speed, power, and all those things. Right. Yeah, in fact, in the draft, you far more often see the, the freakish athlete end up being a bust a because bust. you Absolutely. can't get those skills to come to the table where you'll see the, the, the receiver who ran a four five forty and fell out of, you know, liking with everybody and, and turn into the next Isaac Bruce, you know? Exactly. So, so, uh, so yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see about, about this receiver that they traded up to get, but, um, but it should be interesting if we even have a season. So that, I think uh, that's a, or what, we're going to have a season. Yeah. Or what that season. season will look like rather, um, you know, a potential, uh, Fans America, not in seats or any of that. Uh, uh, America is not going to tolerate that nonsense. Here we are. We're in mid-May. Okay, we got June, July, August. We got four months to go. I would say training camp might be pushed back. I'd be surprised if it is, but it shouldn't be. But you know, everything should be on time and with some things put in place for people going to a venue like that. But we'll we'll discuss that. But yep. I, I would be ultimately shocked if there was anything considerable that would impact NFL season. Yep. Yep. No, I, I mean, they released the schedule. They did so with some buffer to where if they needed to delay the first three weeks, they did it. So like all of, I don't know, it's weird. They, they made the bye weeks coincide with the third week opponent for everybody. And they purposely chose division games at certain times. So it looked like they left some leeway to slide it back if they needed to. Um, right. So they're definitely doing some stuff to to try and keep this in mind, but it, it looks like they want to proceed. But that's a that's a perfect segue uh, into the topic of the day, so the topic du jour, if you will. What do we what do we have on tap there, sir? I don't know what's going on in the world. Nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing exciting, nothing interesting. I'll tell you that. Um. Yeah, I mean, our world, you know, our world, our little small little world here changed on March 16th when our local county and and the Bay Area at large, uh, well, not at large, actually, because it was only San Francisco, Alameda, Santa Clara, San Mateo, City of Berkeley, and Marin. So what is that, six, five, six counties in one city who has Mm -hmm. to to be special. Um, So they decided to come together and act as a region um, and... The shelter-in-place order for that region, our county, went into place March 16th at uh, 12 midnight. So since then, 
we, our common ground, we've been operating under an organizational state of an emergency in order to comply with the tenants, tenants of the shelter-in-place order, which we call a SIPO. Um, so, so for us, so what is what is the organizational state of emergency? What does that mean? Well, we have no, we had no idea whether or not the you know, transportation of goods was going to be interrupted. We knew that there was going to be delays, there's going to be shortage of things, not because those things were in short supply, but because people were running on them for no good reason, causing short supply. So things like hand sanitizer and so on, there was enough in the market, but you had people who were hoarding them to try and resell. Um, And for those who don't know this, those folks who were hoarding were blocked from selling on the major resale sites because they were they people they they realized that they were hoarding them. Um, yeah. So it was funny. One guy ended up having like seventeen thousand uh, containers of hand sanitizer that he couldn't sell. Yeah, yeah, out, exactly. Have he, fun he, with all that. He went around to all the you know WalMarts and Targets and Walgreens and you name it and collected all of them, bought all of them um, before you know the the larger the states in mass started shutting down. So we, in our OSC, Organizational State of Emergency, we decided to take stock of all of our supplies from A to Z and kind of go into a very uh, managed state with them since we didn't know when we'd be able to get replenished. So that included food and everything. And, you know, when you're operating a residential sites, um, you'll be surprised at things you don't think of that when you can't get them, how important they become. Um, you know, even in our emergency thinking and planning for where we live. So we live in California. It's an earthquake state. We know that if there's a, even a, a mild earthquake to a major earthquake, we can lose power, um, either, either that be gas, electricity, you name it. And so we have to think in terms of being able to get around that for a week to two weeks, if not longer. Uh, we, we never thought about, you know, we wouldn't be able to get toilet paper or paper towel or things of that nature. You know what I'm saying? So right. uh, we really had to revamp our thinking, um, not only in the current moment, but even thinking long term to be prepared, strategically prepared for something like this, not necessarily uh, an epidemic or a pandemic, but just in case there's an interruption in the supply chain that we have enough of a strategic supply of things that we need, certain types of food, sundry, personal sundries, cleaning supplies, etc., dry goods that can sustain us um, for 30 days. So yeah. If if there's anything that comes out of it for us, it's that is developing that strategic supply. But um, I think, and we can talk about this in a larger detail. But as far as inside of our common ground, we were kind of fortunate on a couple of fronts. Number one, we were we were telehealth ready, meaning that we had enough systems in place to continue to provide services via telehealth. Um, and for those who don't know, telehealth is not telephone, it's video. If you're just using telephonic means, that's just telephonic. 
Um, true telehealth is when you have video face to face. You could you could see each other, um, and you're providing a service. Uh, so they kind of use it just to describe everything when technically it's not. But we, we because we were using Zoom to do our meetings, our trainings for the last 18 months, um, we were to a certain extent infrastructurally set up to just moving on into providing groups and one-on-ones via Zoom, which is what we did. And we kind of started out slow. Uh, what was it? One group a day, then two two groups a day, but we were splitting a family in two. So one would go in the first group, half would go in the second group, um, so that we could maintain some, you know, a little bit of social distancing. I think it's important for our listeners to know. Fortunately, we were treated as no different than a regular family unit because all of our clients uh, were sheltered in place since March 16th. So. Amongst themselves, there was, there was very little risk because they weren't coming and going. The only people that were coming and going were us, the staff. And we were on a, a reduced skeleton crew um, as the clinical team was working from home, all of them, and the administrative team were on a type of a rotation. Um, the recovery residents is already on a skeleton crew, so it really wasn't that much change to what they're doing. Um, but luckily, even though we still required our clients inside the confines of the facility to practice reasonable social distancing and so on and so forth, it wasn't. we weren't going crazy with it because it's no different than you're being in your family with people that are in your family, in your four walls of your house um, that, you know, Whatever y'all got, y'all got. Whatever y'all don't have, y'all don't have. Uh, right, exactly, and, exactly. And, and, right, and the only thing that's the only way something's going to come in is if someone who's from the outside comes in there and brings it in. Mm-hmm. So we were very careful in terms of making sure that the staff who were coming to work were practicing all of the appropriate um, precautions so that they could would not bring something into the facility. And then for all the clients, just as another safety measure, once a day, every day, we're taking their temperatures and also doing a uh, symptom screen. And then I think a week or two after that, we started taking the temperature and doing the symptom screen for all staff coming on site. So I would say um, that our, our overall system of what we implemented has been pretty robust and um, if not annoying, <laughs> because here I am going to the residential facility, and I have to ring the doorbell like everybody else, wait for the staff on duty to come to the front door. I can't even step into the building, check my temperature, symptom screen, and then before I can enter. You know what I'm saying? Even, yep. even yep. though, and, and, and let me try and draw a visual for people. At the residential facility, my office is in the back, so I can actually enter my office without going into the facility. Okay? But... If I leave my office, I have to walk all the way around to the front of the building like everybody else because you can only enter through the front. If you're going to go into that building, you have to come through the front. So I have to leave my office, go all the way around to the front of the building, ring the doorbell like everybody else, and then get screened. Now, after that, I can then come through the back, you know, from my office to the back of the facility. Um, but So nobody's exempt from, from the protocols. So that has worked out. And, and 
our clients, we've had, I want to say between the two sites, we've had about six clients tested, but not because they had any symptoms or anything like that. They went to the hospital for unrelated reasons, and we're still not sure why they were tested. We can only speculate that they either knew or they found out that they were in a congregate living environment, and they decided to test them. Our clients came back negative, which was good information for us because it meant that what we were doing was working. Um, right. So far, so good. Nothing had snuck in because, as you know, Mr. Producer, that if someone gets a cold, someone gets the flu or anything else in the facility, 65% of the people are catching it. That's just oh, the yeah. Way it is. Easy. And, that, and, that's, and that's being uh, – that's on the uh, conservative end. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's it's more often than not, they're uh, everybody's getting it. <laughs> so, and they yeah, may not yeah. do it at the same time, but it'll just work its way through. Um, so I made sure to tell the family on both sides that hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do inside to make sure you're practicing all the precautions. And uh, of course, we implemented significant hand wash. By the way, another important thing for our listeners, we did something that was counterintuitive. We removed almost all of the hand sanitizer out of the facility. Okay, we have a couple strategically placed, like in the staff office or at the front door, so on and so forth. But the majority, 98% of the hand sanitizers, we took off the wall because we wanted the clients and staff to focus on washing their hands, not using the hand sanitizer, because we have access to bathrooms, sinks, and and whatnot. So there was no reason to rely on the hand sanitizer. Now, right. if if there was, you know, the strategic locations where we have it is if something is going on, you're unable to get to the bathroom or whatever the case may be, then it's there in case you use it. But our clients and staff have been very good about, you know, following the protocols inside the facility in terms of washing hands and all that good stuff. And the clients, since day one, they weren't, oh, man, you know, this is messed up. You know, blah, blah. I mean, what do they know? They're sheltered in place anyway <laughs> all the time. They're not going anywhere. So, I mean, what's it to them? But, right. but, but their attitude has been great. And because their attitude has been great and because they implemented everything that we asked them to do, that has played a large part in, in the facility staying not only symptom-free, but nothing has come in. We haven't had any, we haven't had any colds. We haven't had the regular flu. No sore throats, no coughs, no nothing. You'd be surprised how much washing your hands, how much that stops, all of that stuff, just the regular old coal from spreading around. Right, so, right. With that said, we, uh, we, start, we started to slowly then ramp up the, the level of services we were providing via Zoom. And, uh, you know, we had some technical issues which we eventually worked out. And of course, Mr. Producer, you know how you and I are, you know, we're kind of, um, you know, you know, this is where the perfectionist side of us comes in handy because we, you know, we weren't satisfied until it was, you know, issue free, no, no technical difficulties whatsoever. It was smooth for the clinicians. It was smooth for the clients. Everyone had to have a good experience because if you didn't have a good experience with the, with the zoom based services, it could become very annoying. So if I couldn't hear you or you couldn't hear me or your screen kept freezing or, or I was, my audio was choppy, whatever the case may be, anything like that would make the experience annoying and, and not something that you would look forward to 
in lieu of the the, stat, the clinician being present in the room. So we were able to work out whatever issues came up, and I think we've got to a place now where it's just, you know, and we ask, we ask, hey, anything happens, let us know. We ask the clients, hey, if something's not working for you guys, let us know. And so far, I want to say, Mr. Producer, for the last three weeks to a month, it's been smooth sailing. Yeah, very much. So I got that right. Time-wise, about three weeks to a month has been smooth sailing. Yeah, um, so yeah, about three weeks. About three weeks. Yeah, and the the clinicians have been very good. Um, you know, whoever needed, you know, equipment, we've helped them out with equipment. Um, whoever needed a webcam or a mic, whatever it is, we we helped them out, and because uh, we wanted everyone to have stuff. You know, sometimes we keep laptops at home that are 25 years old. They might be working beautifully for at home, but you try to hook those things up to a mic or a webcam or uh, video conferencing, and it's a totally different story. So, and we had a couple of those issues, which we were able to resolve by letting people borrow some equipment from the site, and um, that kind of solved those those issues. And now, I would I want to say, like, as of today, we are about, I want to say between 75 and 80 percent, and we're, the reason, only reason we're not high, higher than that is because EPA, is, the residential facility is still lagging behind a little bit, not, not because of any of their doing. It's because of we're just kind of going slow with, with the residential facility in terms of ramping up their, their services um, to catch up to where the outpatient program is and the recovery residence is. Um, and, and they should be ready to rock and roll next week to get their services up. So on average for both, we're about 75 80% of where we were prior to the shelter-in-place order going into effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, so the, the technical aspect, which is what you spoke on, which is what I wanted to touch on, that was kind of the main the the main bit, like you had said, that we wanted to make sure we got under control, right? Because the message to the clients about having a shelter in place, like you said, it, you know, it's not going to have an impact on many of them because it's not like they're going anywhere anyway. But then having to do groups remotely became kind of the immediate challenge. And it's not like... I don't know, maybe for anybody out there, if you're in a, attending a work meeting via Zoom where, you know, something goes in and out or there's a moment of choppiness, it may not be that big of a deal. Um, you know, you, you might be able to get the minutes after, so to speak, or you can kind of ride with those, those technical glitches. But in a therapeutic setting where we're trying to run a group or an individual session um, where the – the interaction and the communication um, is key, right? Because you, the group could cut out at a moment where someone is maybe sharing something deep and uh, they're waiting for feedback. And then the, there's a moment of awkward silence. The clinician's not giving feedback and come to find out the screen froze or there's a connection issue. And that can really damage the feeling uh, of that interaction. And if that happens regularly, you can easily get, clients to say, well, you know, I don't want to do this. This is ridiculous. And, and it kind of creates um, an interesting challenge where technically you want to have the group on point as smooth as possible um, to not interfere with that kind of therapeutic interaction. 
And so um, I think you'd said, yeah, three to four weeks. I think we're at about three weeks where from the hardware, like the device that we were using to how we were connecting to having Comcast come out and check and verify the signal um, to how the clinical staff were connecting from home and doing our best to get the environment exactly such that although it's not ideal and it's not the same as having therapy in person, it could be like the next best thing versus just something that could end up being more frustrating. Exactly. And like I said before, it doesn't help that you and I are perfectionists when it comes to things like that. So we weren't going to stop (laughs) until it it was as close to perfect as possible. And, and of course we were on Comcast's rear end because, you know, prior to this, all this ever happening, we had upgraded our service capacity um, just for our staff meetings because we were having problems in the staff meeting and we kind of narrowed it down to what was the cause and so on and so forth. And so we invested in upping our service ability and we still weren't getting what we were paying for. So that's when the, the dude came out who was extremely helpful and kind of started the first key diagnosis of what was causing some of our problems. Um, and from there we kind of, uh, and then we asked uh, Mr. Producer, he has a friend, a friend of a friend who uh, knows all about this stuff. We nicknamed him the KIAF, spelled K-I-A-F. It's, it's an acronym for know his know-it-all friend, um, who bet his career that the major source of our problem was the laptop that we were using as the hub of those services. And I had my doubts about that, but he ended up being correct that after we did some testing to kind of isolate it and determine whether or not that, in fact, was the, the main culprit, turned out to be true. Because after we switched it and switched out the Chromebook and put in the regular laptop, um, that has been smooth sailing. Yeah. Now, the other thing... <clears throat> at the residential site, they, they're set up a little bit differently. And so anyone who's listening who, who has experienced the large daytop facilities upstate, Swan Lake or Parksville, you kind of, if you remember the, the dining rooms and how large they were. Now, our dining room in the residential facility is not as large as those. So let's say uh, the Parksville dining room, I want to say maybe uh, 75% of that and the Swan Lake dining room, maybe 50% of that. Swan Lake had a larger dining room than Parksville. And so the Zoom, and by the way, we use the OWL cameras, which is another thing that we do different from other people that we're finding out is different from other people. We didn't know it was different. We're just, people are just telling us that, wow, your setup is pretty impressive. We didn't know it was. But um, so we use the OWL camera, which kind of pans around the room focuses on the speaker and gives you a panoramic view, et cetera. But it's not, it wasn't designed for very large rooms. And so as people are sitting in, in, a, in a larger group circle, um, audio became an issue, not within, the, not within the circle itself, but for people, the clinician listening remotely. 
Um, so we kind of adapted different things, and, and they now have the ability for those people who don't naturally speak loud. They kind of have a, a soft speaking tone. They can have a they can hold a handheld wireless mic um, when they talk, which just boosts their audio a little bit so that it's picked up by the microphone, the owl, and um, so the clinician can hear them. But one of the bonuses for our clients, and, and it's it's one of the things I want to be able to continue to do. Once all this stuff kind of goes by the wayside in terms of uh, people having to shelter in place, we we have AA and NA, 12-step, let's just call it, remotely coming in to our facilities, and our clients are participating in those groups. So at some point, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks after the fact, I started to say, I said, well, let me check it out and see how, how it's going, how, how this is looking. And so I connected in, and it was pretty cool. I was just listening in. I wasn't using, I mean, I had video on my phone, but mm-hmm. I was just more listening than, than participating with video. And it was clear. It was audible. Um, when our folks were speaking, it was clear and audible, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, well, you know, why not invite some of our alumni who might want to uh, either just listen in or even participate um, to do that because, you know, when you're doing things remotely, it's open to anybody. Not that it's open to anybody, but you can participate from anywhere. That's the whole point. You don't have to be sitting in the room. You can be 3,000 miles away and participate. So Mm -hmm. um, I've, for the recovery residents 12 step group, I've offered, it to folks, alumni, uh, a couple have requested to participate. So those names have been submitted. And then I'm going to check out the residential facilities group to see how that's going. And if it meets my standard in terms of its technical operation. And it's important for people to know at this moment in time, we're not the ones that are doing the putting on the group. We're just linking in. But when this is over, and the folks start coming back on site to do the do the twelve step group. We're going to provide a remote access to for other people. Okay. So that's one of the things I'm hoping we'll be able to continue. Okay. Yeah. The the and the AA group was also to speak to um, our record of three weeks of flawlessness. Knock on wood. Um, the AA folks, and now they've got some experience because they're trying to bring groups into other facilities where uh, residential, essentially, settings where um, clients are not allowed to leave to go to these meetings like they normally would. Um, and usually in facilities like this, you'll get people who will come in to host a meeting inside the facility. Um, and so I know that these folks have been offering to do remote AA meetings for many other programs in the area. Mm-hmm. And some of them, um, they've managed to do that, but with not as much success. And some of them, they've not been able to do it because the infrastructure is not set up for it. And so um, it was just uh, maybe last week or two weeks ago uh, where the host for AA had come on and um, and stated that we had like far and away the, the best setup, technically speaking, she has seen during this time. 
um, that we have really got it to work like smoothly and seamlessly and, and how impressed they were with our setup. So I think, um, you know, the, the outside is noticing that as well. It speaks to um, our efforts to try and get it to, to the level that it's currently at. And we're still not satisfied. <laughs> but, yeah, right. So another another uh, thing that has occurred as a result of the shelter-in-place order is that we had to um, – so our clinicians were working from home, but there was also staff that we had to re- kind of restrict from working because they kind of fell into high-risk categories. And those categories could be anything from – either just age or it could be respiratory um, illnesses that they may have had or they may periodically suffer from or, you know, other things that may put them at high risk, Um, not high risk within working within the organization, but high risk just being out in society and so on and so forth. And so we, we, you know, we asked them to stay home um, and whoever had a regular, schedule. It's one of the things we've been fortunate in San Mateo County so far, knock on wood, I'm knocking on particle board right now, my desk, but um, they have they have paid the providers to continue providing services, but, but so far we're the only provider that has continued to take admissions during the shelter in place. Um, and that's again because we were infrastructurally set up to do that, meaning that we, uh, if People who are coming from controlled environments, uh, coming from the jail or coming from detox or coming from the hospital or whatever the case may be, they're being screened two or three times before they get to us, and then we screen them. Um, the only people who are out of luck were those who were just coming off the street because the county didn't have it set up where you can send them to get tested and then, boom, have them come in. Um, that's one of the weak spots that this county has had is that they had the testing set up for people who were symptomatic, and that was tremendously overstated the amount that they thought they would be getting, and they had to they almost had to close down their testing site because they were they were getting nobody. I think one right. week they got fifty fifty people, and that was like the highest they got. And so when I read that in the newspaper, the local newspaper, that Monday I emailed the director and said, Hey, why don't you allow programs who are trying to get people to come in who are off the street or whatever to be able to send these people to get tested, etc." And the response back was that we couldn't, or they couldn't because right now the protocol was still, you had to be symptomatic to be tested. Shows you how slow government is to, to, to move and flex to and move, yeah. to the things on the ground. Right, um, right, right got to go through 37 people before you can get something changed <laughs> the, so, what, what's that called the bureaucratic red tape yeah the bureaucratic method <laughs> right so here we are sitting what is it almost eight weeks after the fact and we're still we still can't get uh non-symptomatic people who are trying to get into treatment tested and we can't take them in because we have no way of knowing that they've been sheltering in place and they've been practicing precautions and all that stuff and I would, there is no way in hell that I would allow them to come into our facilities and endanger what we've been doing and keeping our facility free of anything. Too much of a risk. Right. And it's unfortunate because we're getting pressure from people who are doing the referrals. 
not realizing, even though we're telling them that, hey, there's nothing we can do because we, we're, we can't get this area of the, of the government, the county government, to change their protocol so that these people can get in and get tested. And no, we're not going to take his word for it that he's been sheltering in place. Because that's one of the questions they asked. He said, well, he said he's been sheltering in place. He said, and you believe him? Yeah, yeah right. I believe him. I said, well, guess what? He's an addict. We don't believe him. And even if he was telling the truth, we, we, we trust him, but we need to verify it. <laughs> trust and right. <but> verify <laughs> That's yeah. That's so, that's how it always was. That that's that's the old day top. Uh, trust but follow yeah, up. Is how, that's how right. we used to say it. Yeah. So, they as we speak today, they still have not fixed that. Um, they had uh, people from the emergency operations center come out to the residential facilities, the programs to see how we were doing, what we were doing, um, if we were, you know had proper protocols in place and of course we did um they dropped off some ppe stuff not enough obviously um but we weren't uh we weren't we weren't using ppe inside the facilities as a matter of practice because there was a shortage and there was none whatever we had we were saving for if a client became ill and then for a staff person who would have to interact with that client um, and go into the you know isolation area and all that good stuff. So that's what we were saving it for. But in times like this, you know, people come together, right? So we've had we have a staff person who was working from home who sewed some masks. We had a board member donate a lifetime supply of, of material. Mr. Producer, I don't think we are ever going to use all that material that's on that roll. No, so. I'll tell you, but we uh, we we could have come close with uh, with a particular email with whose uh, the sender's identity I will protect, who stated we needed a bunch of twelve foot by sixty inch uh, swaths that I began having them cut, and then said to myself. Uh, there's no way this can be right because we we are running through this material a lot quicker than I ever imagined. Well, I don't think we have to be uh, we have to have secrets. I can cop and say that that was me. However, however, I can't blame it on the fact that I sent that email from my phone without my glasses on, and I could have sworn I pressed <laughs> there you go a quotation mark and not a single quotation for foot, but for inches. But that's what happens when you're not using your glasses. There you but, have um, it. So we have one staff member who sewed some masks for us. Our clients have made how many so far, Mr. Producer? Uh, 150. Have made 150 masks out of the materials that were donated. My wife gave them a method to make the mask without any equipment other than a piece of scissors. And so that's what they're doing. They're making masks without anything but scissors. Um, And then uh, I employed a a member of of the... uh, family, if you will, an extended family who uh, was making masks for anybody and everybody. And I said, wait a second now. Uh, we have an emergency here on our, on our hands in our facility. We need masks because our, our cook has, is required to wear a mask. Food, anyone that's serving food is required to wear a mask. And we had none. If we used right. the masks that we had in, in our strategic supply, it would be gone in a week. Yeah, we would have been out. Sure. So, um, 
We got 30 from the East Coast. We got, I think, 20 from Rachel. We got 150 that we made for the servers. Um, <clears throat> so, and they're going to keep on making the, the clients. are going to continue to make masks, and we're going to donate them to the retirement facility that's right down the block from us and other programs who might need some um, because I, my, I would think that, you know, for the next, you know, through the summer, probably into the fall, um, it's probably going to be recommended that in certain situations that people wear masks, food service, cooks, and things of that nature. So we will continue yeah, that, to need them. That that sounds that sounds right to me. And um, you know, like uh, it's better to be prepared, continue to make them, and have more. And then also, like you said, if we end up not needing them, the giving back to the uh, community is nice. Um, uh oh. So we so so we have some potential breaking news. Uh, from Fox, I believe this is coming, yeah, KTVU Fox 2, that states uh, some health officials in L.A. County have announced that it is more than likely that the shelter-in-place for L.A. County will be extended by three months. That's unfortunate. So that's breaking right now, and uh, as is the state of California, uh, if a highly regarded populous um, well-off county like L.A. County announces and does something like that, you can be sure that uh, the San Francisco Bay Area is not far behind. Well, let me tell you, uh, let me give you a little caveat to that. Because last Friday, um, the governor, no comment, will uh, he kind of loosened up some of the restrictions Okay, that he had ordered. And then our county and, and its regional sisters said, Well, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna go with those loosening restrictions. We're gonna continue with our, you know, very tight shelter in place order. And I'm and I'm wondering what why are they doing that? Because everything they thought was going to happen did not happen. The number of hospitalizations they thought is so far below what they thought was going to be that it's not even worth having a discussion on it anymore. Same thing with, uh, you know, the number of cases, number of deaths, all the statistical categories. So I'm wondering why are they continuing? Because our county has extended it to May 31st. Here we are. We're now at May 12th. And, they, you know, they, the language they use is that you know, we've made a lot of progress, and if we continue to make the progress as we move forward, you know, we should be able to start easing some of these restrictions. I would really like to know what they're looking for, because what they originally say they were looking for has happened, and then something else. I have no idea why L.A. – first of all, why would you do it for three months versus, like, 30-day increments or yeah, see, so day increments? And I've heard that spoken about, right? Yeah, because you could reevaluate because the the situation is so fluid. Uh, you probably should be reevaluating every two weeks or every four weeks. Um, but what I've heard, and now and now this is all opinional and hearsay, obviously, but that um, if they believe, you know, behind the scenes that let's say they're of the mind that 
three months is about what they're going to need before they feel comfortable reopening up. Um, that if that's what they believe, and instead of saying three months on the front end, they say a month, and then the three-week point, they say another month, and then at, when we're a week away from that deadline, they postpone it another month, that the continual postponings, the continuous postponings of these things uh, are going to frustrate or, or, or make angry the community. Uh, because you're getting so back to close to getting back to the way things were, you know, and I use that term loosely uh, just to have it extended again, that that makes things much harder than coming out on the front end saying three months, allowing the community to be in an uproar for a week to two weeks. And then you don't have to deal with that for the next two and a half months. This is what I'm hearing. Those, that's, those are fair points, but um are you familiar with the uh, Nextdoor social site? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh-huh. I'm sure they're all over the country. So I, I belong to the one for my neighborhood. And I posed the question this morning before I left for work, and I have no idea. I, I haven't checked it until I get home. Who knows if I've been lambasted or not. <laughs> but the question was a fair – I believe is a very fair question, which is the federal government has not ordered one business to shut down. Those orders were all placed by state governors and, and counties. Mm-hmm. So with that, what financial responsibility do the states and or local counties have for the devastation that they're causing to businesses? Because if you can reach a point where you, you, you don't even consider the financial damage that you're causing, don't even consider it, then that means either you are – totally um, unconnected to the financial implications of a decision that you're making or you're unconnected in a way that you have no responsibility or no liability so hey there's no impact to me so I could just make that decision and whatever happens happens Right. there's no doubt in my mind that these counties and states are going to get sued Oh, they they are already. I mean, because, that's already happening. Because is L A County going to cover the cost of what the, what's happening to these businesses? See, the federal government tried to step in. Tried to step in. But they didn't order one business to shut down or close. That was the states, and they made recommendations, okay, and then said, "You guys do what you think is best." The states are the ones who've done that. Now, granted. In the first 30 days, I don't think anyone would have had a problem, even with the devastation that was caused in the first 30 days. But at a certain point, okay, and I'm talking about, I'm talking about in California, I'm talking about, um, I'm not talking about New York or New Jersey. Those to me sit on a different level, okay. But California to me is a perfect example. 40 million people, and the amount of um, cases and, 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 and the deaths and hospitalizations they've had for 40 million people is statistically, not humanly, statistically so insignificant in comparison to what they thought was going to happen. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What they thought was going to happen, and which to me is great news, even though we lost close to, I don't know if it's 1,500 to 2,000 where the number is right now, which is terrible, Okay. But they thought in California alone we were going to be where the whole country is. Right, right. 
That's what we were expecting in California alone, because, you know, California is a major port of entry from the, from the Far East. So what are these counties going to do? I mean, it's just like, okay, so, yeah, we're, we're going to extend it, and now these businesses, because they're not allowing business, you know, it's not like they're saying, okay, we're going to allow these businesses to start out and these, but, you know, so people have some hope on the horizon. It's like, okay, so I've now lost my business. Who's responsible for this? Because it wasn't because of anything I did. Who's responsible? Right, well, exactly. Who's responsible? The people who ordered you to close your doors, which is some level of government. Yeah, I've even heard, and again, so now these are just people that are um, trying to, or they're extrapolating a little bit with what's currently happening, but there, there are some folks out there who have, who have been interviewed on either the radio, NPR, or even in the media, um, who've stated, um, it is to a point now where, and this was prior to this three-month announcement with LA, right, where this just happened, but um, that that we are starting to get to the threshold point of where California will need uh, the federal government to step in and aid financially, or the state will go bankrupt. Okay, first of all, the state's already bankrupt, <clears throat> right. so that's not new. And and but I'm not talking about state government. I'm talking about private private business, which is needed. Because this private business taxes and whatnot fund state and local government. So if those businesses are gone, then obviously, yeah, the money that government uses to, to run itself, they don't make money on their own. It comes from businesses. So if those businesses are out of business, those people are out of work, and the government now has to put out money for unemployment and other things, but they're not getting any revenue from those normal sources, yes, it's going to impact them significantly. So is it one arm of the government, the health arm, not talking to the fiscal arm and saying, hey, let's do this in a holistic manner at this point in time? Again, I think any reasonable person can understand the first 30 days, especially before you got information and data and so on and so forth that people could look at. No one knew what the hell was going on at that point. So everyone's like, you know, you, you, do the, you do the most to protect yourself until you get more information, right? That's normal. That's right, natural. Right. But now that people have information, they also have lived experience, um, it's totally different. So decisions, and it seems to me that they have a hard time saying, hey, you know what? Okay, we were wrong in this area, so we can adjust. You don't even have to say you were wrong. You just say, okay, we've got new information. We can now adjust. We can adapt to that new information. It's like if we, if we adjust or adapt, we're admitting that we were wrong. Nobody cares anymore. No, right. And, and another, another piece to that, too, is that uh, – and I was actually having a conversation about this with some people that um, the funny thing is they'll never be wrong because they'll always be able to fall – even if the, uh, the, the mortality rate is – when it – it comes to light and data is presented that the mortality rate is much lower than they had initially guessed it would be or anticipated. And, and we have like a fixed number, like in hindsight, when we're able to look back at this. And even if everybody accepts what that fixed number is, any, anybody who was a part of the, the decision-making of this whole process will, will never be wrong because they'll always be able to fall back on if we hadn't done this, or if we had allowed more leeway 
that with that fixed number, the the finite amount of lives lost would be greater. And so they'll they'll never they'll never have to worry about being wrong in that regard. And I'm and ultimately I'm 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 okay with that. I'm sure a lot of people are okay with that because all we care about is right now. Okay, now that we have information, here we are. We're at least in our county. We're 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 three days away from being two months into a shelter in place. Yeah. Okay, we started March 16th, and so here we are, and we now have lived experience. We have data. We have information. And what you're going to see happen is more and more and more and more people are just going to say F it. You know what I'm saying? So, um, you know, like I was about to say, in this county, we were, we were a little bit fortunate through the end of June because the, the county said, okay, we're going to continue to pay you guys uh, to provide the services. And, well, for us, it made sense because we were continuing to provide services. We were continuing to take people in, and treatment was open. We didn't shut down. We just adapted. Okay, so but they're not saying anything past July one. So you right. know, that's un, that's uncertain. Okay, so we're grateful for through June thirtieth, but nobody knows that anything going on past that. But ultimately, just on a larger, bigger picture, there's going to be some, in my humble opinion, some unnecessary devastation that could have been avoided with a little bit of flexibility and trust in the populace to do the right thing and, and continue to practice certain precautions and so on and so forth. Um, and I don't know how that's going to shake out ultimately because like you said, no one's going to ever say, you know what, we could have done something a bit different um, at this point in time. They'll never say that. And I don't think it matters what, I don't think people at, at a certain point in time will even care if someone says that because their lives have been devastated and not because of that. They've, you know, had a significantly negative experience with the virus or something or lost someone or something like that, which many people have. Um, it's because of, they lost their business. They lost their job. They've been furloughed. They have, they weren't able to open back up in time to, 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 to make it work. And they've, lost life savings, life's work, and so on and so forth. And the counties and the states are going to get off scot-free? No, I hope not. I hope not. They have to have yeah. some skin some skin in the game to help people get back on their feet because it's decisions that they made that caused it. And yeah. no one's saying, hey, no one is saying, oh, you shouldn't have made that decision. No one's saying that. We're saying... You you had you had to make the decision, okay. The decision was supported, okay, but there was a ramification of that decision. And how are you going to help with that ramification? And that also, I think many people will say you extended that decision longer than it had to be in place, which caused further damage. Right. Right. And to me, it's that second part that to me brings more responsibility to them. Not so much the first part, that second part. Because I think people have been able to live and survive with the federal intervention for 30 days, right? And if they were able after 30 days to slowly start moving back in, doing something, that they could have done enough to maybe catch their businesses and, and slowly keep them afloat until they can ramp it back up. But they've just been shut down, shut out, and that's it. 
I mean, look across the country. People are willing to go to jail to try and open their businesses because basically if I can't open, I'm done anyway. If I go to jail, I'm done anyway. Right, right, exactly. And that's and that's the bit of it too, right? Because now uh, we're saying like the mind of a business owner will be, okay, well, let's say that I go against the the state order, the county order, uh, you know, that, that I am supposed to be operational. And if I do operate, let's say that I'm given a citation or, or some sort of fine. Well, I now have to weigh the, the fine versus the, the profits that I stand to lose by not doing anything and say, uh, maybe the, the fine just becomes a part of the, a part of my month, my monthly overhead. Um, because by not doing anything, I'm making zero. Right. So yeah, it's, um, it, it's pretty devastating. There's a lot of, um, small sole proprietor, little family owned businesses that, um, you know, will more than likely not not make it out of this. Uh, as my father used to say, more will be revealed. <laughs> right? <laughs> whatever that means, Dad. <laughs> well, yeah, whatever that means, but it's true. <laughs> yep. it, it certainly, it certainly will be. So, with that all said. Um, we are doing the best that we can, but I think when all is said and done, some of the things that we have done during this period of time will serve us and serve others well. Because what is what are some of the things that are, we're showing in this country is that you know a lot of stuff a lot of stuff can be done from home. You know? Right. So right. for people who who are able and can and it makes sense for them. If 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 you really want to get a lot of cars off the road during rush hour and whatnot, well, this is one of the ways. It's already been proven during. We were forced to do this now. Well, it's proven that hey, if it's possible and it's feasible, and employers are flexible enough, you can do that and make it happen. So that's one thing that we've learned. Another thing that we've learned is that I have to. I won't even say pat myself on the shoulder because not even that, but for the last 10 years, I've been begging this county to uh, incorporate um, video conferencing as an option for the meetings. So, because this is supposed to be a very progressive, forward-thinking county, right? You care about the environment. Why are you having us attend meetings, you know, 17 times a month? So we, we, we drive to the meeting, spend time looking for parking, Go to the meeting for an hour and a half, then drive back home. So you've lost four hours of your day just trying to attend a damn meeting. That's number one. Number two, we could sit at our damn desk and attend the meeting the same way. It doesn't have to be every meeting all the time, but the bulk of them, because we've been sure as hell doing it now for the last two months. Every meeting that we've had, regularly scheduled for the county, has been done through Zoom. And even internally in OCG, remember, we started this a long time ago, right? But look how great our attendance has been. <laughs> yeah, right? With, with, the, with the staff meetings and the Zoom meetings. I mean, there's so many people attending, you can't even fit them all on the screen. You know what I'm saying? So it's like if you could be flexible enough to accommodate folks, you can get better participation. 
I'm not saying that it's feasible all the time in every circumstance, but there are many circumstances where it is feasible. We, we live smack dead in the heart of Silicon Valley, this county, and the fact that they could not move that, you know what I'm saying, and get that set up to have it available for every meeting that they do, that, hey, you know what, you can link in with video conferencing if you want. You don't have to, you know, you don't, you don't have to personally attend the meeting. Ten years I've been asking for that. And every, every um, retreat that we do, every strategic planning that we do with them, I'm always, I was like a broken record. I'm always bringing up the same thing about using technology to help provide services and do meetings and so on and so forth. So the big question now, okay, because they've relaxed a lot of regulation, especially the telehealth regulation, because one of the things I was asking for is, look, Prior to all this, with telehealth, a clinician had to be at the licensed site. The client could be anywhere. I said, that needs to go both ways. Because if you allow it to go both ways, then that means my clinician doesn't have to come into, doesn't have to travel 60 miles every single day to come into the office to provide a service that she could possibly do from home. Cure link and connection. Right, right. And, so then, and, it, and that so has a domino effect too, right? That's not just uh, like convenient for the individual and you get more productivity out of the individual, but it helps keep cars off the road. It helps bring pollution down. I mean, like the, the ramifications are, are vast. That, ramifications, one, right? one of the things I mentioned when I presented this in the last, uh, the county's last strategic planning, I said, and we, we're struggling to compete salary-wise, because of the extremely high cost of living in the Bay Area. I said, but if you can reduce someone's travel costs, the amount they spend for gas and tolls and whatnot, that's like getting a raise. Right. I said, but the, the only way that can happen is if they can do some of the services via remote hookup from home. But they weren't allowed to do that. They had to be at the site, and the client could, well, it doesn't make sense for our clients, because our clients are in the facility already. They're not at home. They're in the facility. So all of that has been waived. All those regulations have been waived during this period of time. It's interesting how when the you-know-what hit the fans, all those regulations mean nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, waive, they waive everything to be, become as flexible as possible. So it would be very interesting to see how quick they, they, they you know what they learn in terms of, hey, you know what? Maybe we can leave that like that. Because people could be more productive. You could see a doctor can see way more people if we allow them to do it this way. And we can do much. And my argument was, look, you can even do a pilot because if your concern is, you know, what's the quality of service going to be, so on and so forth. Because I'm sure that's what people would think about. Hey, you know, someone being in the room during a one-on-one session versus doing it remotely, does the quality diminish and so on and so forth? Well, nothing is like being face-to-face, obviously. But you could still produce a quality service. So let's, let's do a pilot. Let's check it out and see what happens. And you guys can look at the recordings and, and judge for yourself whether or not it's, you know, the quality is good and so on and so forth. You can interview the client, interview the clinician. There's many ways you can do. But all of that has been th- thrown out the window now because they were, hey, we're waving this, waving that. This doesn't matter anymore. We don't care about that. Do whatever you got to do. They even waive confidentiality laws. You know what I'm saying? Don't worry. You can yeah. email the names. You can email the names. You don't have to encrypt the file. You know all that stuff. Even though we we didn't listen to any of that. So it just shows you that if they if they if they wanted to, they could 
you know, be more flexible with some of these laws. So I'm hoping that when this is all over with, that we can continue to do some Zoom-based services and free up the travel time and the, you know, well-being of our staff a little bit more. I hope that's one of the things that comes out of this. Yeah, well, I mean, I would hope so, too, because obviously we're, we're forced into it now. Uh, but sometimes being forced into something is a great way to shed light on the potential benefits of something, right, that, that people might not have been open to trying before. And so, yeah, I hope that, um, like you said, even if, even if the idea is still out there, well, we were forced into it, but, you know, let's, let's really see if it does have an impact on the quality of service or whatever. And like you said, doing, doing a pilot of it. I mean, this, this is the makeshift pilot right here, but when it becomes optional and not mandatory to say, you know, let's see how this works, survey the clients, see what they get and hopefully be able to hold on to some of this. Well, Mr. Producer, let me close with this unrelated topic. So after our last show a couple months ago, I went home and I said to my darling wife, I said, uh, Linda, um, I don't even call her by her first name. I don't even know why I said that. Um, I'm going to need you to um, do another promo for the radio show because the one that we have on there is a little dated and some of the things have changed and so on and so forth. And she said, this was her response. She said, hmm. And and like Ralph Crandon, I said, what does mm mean? And she Mm -hmm. said, well, she said, uh, I don't know, but uh, maybe you might want to check the stats to see uh, how many uh, shows you've had because uh, I've been checking the mailbox and I ain't been receiving no royalty checks. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I heard that. There you go. Threw that out there. I said, royalty checks? I said, I thought you were donating your time. Not a chance. Money talks. And I said, not only will you donate your time, you'll donate it and you'll like it. <laughs> that's yeah, Humphrey right. Bogart. People who don't know, that's a Humphrey Bogart joke. That's not how I talk to her. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's pretty good. That's pretty funny. So I hope to uh, get to work on that and get our promo updated so that uh, we can be giving our current information um, and not information from 2014. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good. Um, let's let's just hope that uh, we can slide by without the royalty check. Yep. Because we'd owe her a lot. We'd owe her a lot. That's all I got, sir. That's where we're at. Shelter in place order still in effect, San Mateo County. There you have it. Down. We're still we're still locked down. Well, uh, hopefully when we, when we come on next, uh, we will be able to come on next with maybe some better news, some more promising news, or Oof. the next time we come on, we'll be given an update about being in the same spot and, uh, things are tightening up. They're going in the other direction. So they're getting looser. They're getting tighter. <laughs> they're going in the other direction. So, uh, so we'll have to see, but anyway, all right, well, good to get back on the air and let folks know where we've been. Um, and what the current state of the union looks like here, and um, and hopefully we'll be on again soon with uh, with with better news as far as uh, the community getting healthier and getting well and, and opening back up. So I think it was a great show, well timed, good information, and uh, we will leave everybody with that. So 
Um, as always, uh, until the next time, folks, we wish everybody, um, you know, s- safety at this time. We, we wish everyone and, and their families are well and are healthy and stay safe um, and still manage to find ways to, to have a little bit of fun in there, take up some new hobbies. And uh, hopefully when we check in with you all next time, um, it will be with everybody being in a better place. But we wish everybody uh, the ongoing support that they may need, and we appreciate everyone who continues to support us and our show uh, during this time. And with that said, we will catch everybody on the flip side.
our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, I'm